Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our hosts, Bob Cheviar and co-host Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. I'm Bob Chevier, the host of Outside the Lines, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And today, I think we have a really important subject to discuss with all of you, how to make a game plan. I know myself, often in lessons, I will tell my students when we play some practice points at the end of a session, make a plan. And I think they do the best they can, but I think today, if you can stick with us for this episode, you'll see how much is actually involved in synthesizing and developing a game plan for a match. Um, Scott, before uh, we get started, you survived the flood from uh, yesterday, or how are you doing over there? Uh, well, I guess we survived, but we have to do uh, work on the downstairs below grade room where water came in through the foundation. So uh, we got some things in front of us to try to prevent more of this from happening. I mean, we have had two six inch of water storms in the last like two months. Yeah, I so. hear you. Now we're going to get right to the subject, but let me just say if that happened to me, I'd be, I'd be moving to a different house. <laughs> okay. I just can't <laughs> deal with that stuff. Um, I hear you. So uh, when we were making our plan for this podcast and started taking notes, I realized early on that there's so much information that's going to go into what we're about to share with you that it's going to be better to speak about this in two separate episodes. And we're going to begin today with talking about how to make a game plan in singles and we will return at a later date with how to make a game plan for doubles. And I was telling Scott that I feel like singles is more, more like checkers and doubles is more like chess. And Scott, why don't you uh, explain to our listeners what I was talking about there? The... The differences are similar in those two games in that singles versus doubles in tennis, it's a more straightforward interaction between the players. There's a more limited um, number of things that you can do effectively to make a difference in the match against your uh, opponents. Uh, tactics. So they fall into a 
more simplistic uh, set of parameters. Whereas in doubles, things really start to open up because you have the dynamics of having two players who are guarding 36 feet wide versus <laughs> one player in singles guarding 27 feet wide. So with the angles and many other variations, uh, chess is definitely the more complex setup. So in, in singles, there is a lot of punching and counter punching. As you notice some of these top singles matches, though these points can go on and on and on with the players hitting very solid, deep ground strokes, sometimes not even hitting the ball that far out of the middle. If you've ever observed a match in singles with two top players, like let's say Djokovic playing Nadal, you can see these rallies going on where the ball never really goes that often to within two or three feet of the sideline. Only under certain circumstances are they going to take the ball, you know, that close to the line and that being the outline uh, for them. So, so Scott, that's really, excuse me, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because there was a match, an exhibition match played back in the day between Jimmy Connors and Martina Navratilova. And the match was handicapped. Jimmy Connors could hit only into the singles court. Martina could hit into the doubles court. And Jimmy only got one serve. So if he faulted, it was a double fault. And the reason I'm mentioning this match is that Jimmy had to cover those alleys. The best way for him to, to make sure Martina couldn't make any angles was to hit down the middle, down the middle until he got one he liked, and then he bang it to the corner. So what you're saying about a lot of good singles players are now playing strong up the middle until they get a good opportunity to go to the corner. That match was, do you remember that match? Um, actually, kind of vaguely. Uh, I... I think I remember uh, Billie Jean King's match with Bobby Riggs better than, than uh -huh. the Connors Navratilova. But um, did Connors? What what was the result of that match? Con Connors won. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, that does highlight, like you were saying, different singles and doubles, and the ability to make angles. Uh, so in talking before the broadcast about how you or I go about making a game plan for a match. I think we both agreed that the most important thing was to know ourselves, sort of following the ancient Greek aphorism, know thyself. We had to know when we step on the court, which shots we had command of, what type of style of play we wanted to get involved with. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about <clears throat> what it means, know thyself, when you come on to the court and you're forming a game plan? Sure. You have to be able to take 
inventory of shots that you possess and ones that are consistent and are reliable when you call on them in a match. Also very important is to know what strokes you have that tend to break down and you make unforced errors on and how to try to compensate for that in a match. Obviously, we're all trying to practice and improve our weaknesses so that they are not uh, readily available to the opponent in a match. But you have to know the things that you don't do well and then take that into account. The other thing that comes up here is you must only use the shots that you really own because they they are not going to be there in a match just because you see an opening or you see a winning play if this is not something that's in your repertoire. So by knowing yourself and your game, you will be only calling upon those things that you have control over and thus you're going to play more consistently and be able to execute uh, the, the strategies that you come up with in your game plans. So Scott, an important part of formulating a game plan besides knowing yourself is to take account of your opponent. And let's speak about the case where you haven't played someone before and it's important for you to assess your opponent in the five to 10 minute warm-up period. What, what sort of things, well, first, let me just ask you, if you had to choose getting your own game going in the warm-up or paying a lot of attention to your opponent, which of those two, if you could only do one, would you choose? I think I would get my game going. I agree completely. My feeling always was, although I never played Raul Ramirez like you did, but my feeling was <laughs> if I got my game going, I was going to do really well. I may not win every single time, but I was going to um, make it really tough for my opponent or come out as the winner of the match. So that was always my number one concern in the warm-up, get myself going. But it didn't mean that I wasn't also paying attention to my opponent. And one of the things I looked at was their physical attributes. I wanted to assess early on if this was going to be a long match and I knew I was in really good shape, could this opponent hang with me for three full sets? Or did I feel like they weren't in the same condition I was and they would break down? I'd also take a look at the grips that they used on various shots. Sometimes those grips are a little bit off. And we can spot this in the warm-up. And, and Scott, um, how do you feel like your students do in terms of being able to identify a grip that an opponent uses from the other side of the net? 
it's a great observation from you, Bob, to see and investigate how knowledgeable our students are and players in general about what the different grips mean to producing the different shots. I think that a large percentage of club players have very little idea and very little feel for, first of all, just observing across the net, like what the grip actually is that the other player is using. They may not be able to really see if they're using like a, you know, a little bit more Western versus an Eastern forehand and thus that affecting how much topspin the opponent is going to produce or be able to produce consistently. So I think that there is a need for educating students in terms of those dynamics when it comes to the grips. And if you start to get a feel for what kind of grips can make certain kinds of things happen with the ball on a more consistent level, then you know whether that player can hit a slice or hit a topspin uh, or hit the ball, you know, with pace and keep the ball in uh, because they have a, a grip that allows them to play with more spin. So I remember playing a match where the player just was hitting flat balls all the time. So I didn't have to deal with Topson when I came to the net. And I remember also the same player could not volley if the ball was below the net. So every time he came to the net, I would hit like a slice and I would get the ball like down and he would try to hit a volley up because he had to go over the net, but always with pace and he didn't really use backspin. And partly it was due to the way his grip was. And I won that match seven, five in the third uh, in the middle of Long Island. And it was very much as a result of knowing uh, that information. Uh, and I used it in the match. That's a great example uh, where our listeners can really begin to understand how you'd be assessing someone's grip and their limitations and it would help you with your shot selection during the match. Now, to me, the most fundamental decision when you're making your game plan is whether you're going to play a steady or an aggressive game. And just so our listeners are clear, when you play a steady game, it does not mean that you hit zero winners. It just means you're going to make less errors, but because you're taking less risk, you're going to hit fewer winners as well. When you play a more aggressive game, you're going to hit more winners, but you're also going to make more unforced errors. And it's the way those two parts of any individual's game match up that determines what should be the, the ultimate matchup between two players. So for example, Scott, you were telling me the other day about a match between Bjorn Borg and Guillermo Vilas, it was probably in the late 70s or mid 70s. And 
tell the fans this was the finals of the Italian Open. And it was one of those three hour and 45 minute matches. But what was the score? Most people that I talked to and I asked them what they think this, what I, what, what do they think the score was if uh, Vilas and when Vilas and Borg are playing in the finals in Rome and the match is uh, closing in on four hours. And most people say, well, it's best of five, right? And I'm like, yes. And then they say, well, must be like six, four, five, seven, seven, six, five, seven, seven, five. And I'm like, no, it was love two and love. And they're like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's so counterintuitive. But when you start to see how these players basically played on red clay and you are looking at not only 10 or 15 shots per point, sometimes you're looking at 25 to 35 shots per point. And that would take an awful long time. And just for our listeners' uh, entertainment, Bob, Jorn uh, Borg was the winner in that kind of contest. Yeah. In that contest. Because he was the ultimate master at hitting ad infinitum. He didn't care how many shots he was going to hit in the point to win the point. And he had mental capabilities that were so rock solid. And he knew he could just go out there and, and last forever. He was in the greatest shape. He had the lowest heart rate of any player on the tour, I think. And he had total confidence that all he had to do was stay out there and keep the ball going. So that brings up why I think when McEnroe came along, just a little bit later, he gave Borg a lot of trouble because in that steady, aggressive matchup, McEnroe knew how to play really strong, aggressive tennis. Yeah, I, I just think that it was difficult for McEnroe to really uh, do it when it came to the slow clay at uh, Roland Garris. So he didn't didn't quite have, you know, the huge game that could overwhelm the other players uh, when it came to the clay. And he never did win the French, but he certainly could do a lot of damage and did at the Australian, at Wimbledon on the grass and the U.S. Open on, you know, fairly quick hard courts at that time. So. Let's just say you're a club player right now, and you do have a pretty good steady game, but you don't have the ability to say, gee, I've got a player on the other side of the net who's more consistent than I am. What type of weapons, Scott, would you be looking to develop first to uh, be able to at least have an option of going to the aggressive game versus the steady game, which was your rock and foundation. Right. A lot of players begin to think about when they go to the more aggressive style is they want to hit the ball or they think they should hit the ball harder and make the ball go faster. 
Unfortunately, it plays right into the hands of a steady player who very often, because he's not hitting the ball very hard himself, likes to have that pace that comes in from his opponent's shots. So that can really backfire because you hit the ball harder and maybe you'll throw in some winners there, but you're going to get an awful lot of balls still coming back because those players that are so, so steady usually are pretty mobile and they can run things down and they can get the ball back and then they just wait for you to implode. So when I think about stepping up and making the more aggressive move is I will wait a little bit and I'll look for the short ball that allows me to go up into the midcourt and make an approach shot and go to the net because now you have the ability to put the ball away if the steady player just plays the ball back through the middle with very, very you know easy pace and is still just playing that steady style, you can take the ball out of the air once you're inside that service line and you can do a lot of damage where that player is not gonna catch up to the ball. So you have effectively shortened the time span for the opponent when you have gone to the net because you've, you've shortened the distance between the two of you. And now your offense is basically uh, that relationship. You don't have to hit the ball that hard when you get to the net to make a winner. You have angles now available. If you want a drop shot, you can hit a drop shot, which would bring that other player off the baseline. Or if you move that player out of the center and then they make a return and you have an opening on the other side of the court, you can hit the volley to that open side and you can start to finish the point without having to produce any you know, gargantuan velocity-oriented shots. So that's what I would do is I would start going in. Oh, absolutely. Learning how to finish from the front of the court and using the front of the court is key to becoming a better aggressive attacking player. But Scott, what about those players who when they first come to the net, find that the ball gets lobbed over their heads repeatedly. What do you think's going on there? Well, the player that's at the baseline sees these players that are coming in and they're saying, I don't want you at the net, so I'm going to throw up this high lob and I'm going to test your overhead, number one. And number two, I'm going to test your mobility because very often players are not quite as adept at moving back into the court and then taking the overhead and hitting a high velocity shot. But if you notice in the more advanced ranks, players are beginning to be able to go back and put overheads away. And the player who is attacking the net has to realize that they have to play a very strategic approach shot so that the opponent is not able to just throw them off by throwing up a high lob and, and getting them to go back again. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, 
a difference and our listeners should appreciate it that between an approach shot that just goes in and one that makes adequate pressure on the opponent so they can't do whatever they like with the ball. So one of those key shots, I think, for developing the attacking style is getting enough on the approach shot without trying to kill the ball. Yeah, there was a player, uh, Bob, um, I don't know if you played him. I played him once and I never wanted to play him again. But Steve Ross was... I played him twice. Oh, my oh, God. You played him twice. Okay. <laughs> And, you know, I, I played him outdoors on clay. And I think that the problem I had, because he just like, like drove me crazy when I went to the net because he had this amazing lob. And then I couldn't put the overhead away, even though I had a big overhead. He got me back far enough so that like my overheads either, you know, I tried too much and missed or I hit it where he could get it back again. But it just kept coming back. So... I have a feeling like looking back on uh, that particular match that I was not really doing enough with that approach shot because he was very comfortable uh, defending against that. And, you know, you have to own a drop shot at some point in your, in your game so that you can also throw the drop shot in against someone as you move up and not just have them sit back there camped on the baseline taking your shot and doing, you know, all kinds of aggravating things to you while you come to the net. Well, the first time I played Steve Ross, I actually beat him. Wow. And that's a great win. It is a mixture of, I served and volleyed a lot behind a strong first serve where he would always get the ball back, but I could shorten the point and make or break. Usually got a good look. I used the drop shot. But the shot I used more than any other was pushing him back with a high top spin. He'd moonball it back, and I'd make the swing volley from midcourt. And that totally frustrated him that I was able to execute that shot so well and maintain the pressure on his. Normally, he's very comfortable on a clay court. But um, that first time we played, I really got him uncomfortable using a combination of those tactics. So there's one other modern shot, which I think has come into vogue a little bit more in the last 15 years or so, the inside out forehand. Could you talk about that a little bit, Scott, as a potential weapon and why it's a weapon? Sure. The, the key is that you're going to generally be able to produce more pace using your forehand than your backhand because it's basically a longer stroke. And so even compared to the two-handed backhand, you can get a little bit more going on it. And you can also get around your backhand and then hit that inside out for everybody so they understand what an inside out forehand is or an inside out shot is that you are getting around on the other side of the ball. Like if you're on the backhand side, you get around it and you're hitting a forehand and then you're going back cross court. So that's inside out. If you go down the line with that forehand after you ran 
around your backhand. That would be called inside in. So when you hit that inside out forehand, you can create a certain amount of angle depending on where you are. And you can also create a certain amount of speed. And if you're matched up against a, another righty, then you're going to their backhand side. And you can very often wear the player down and get a ball now that comes shorter or comes through the middle of the court. And then you can go in and attack and take time away from your opponent. Uh, but you have to earn your way up into the net because you keep hitting that forehand inside out to their backhand. That's it's a key shot in modern tennis. And I encourage all of our listeners to experiment with developing a better inside out forehand. So this is a question which comes up all the time, Scott, you have a plan against a certain player and it's not working out so well. At what point in the score or at what point in your assessment of what's going on, do you make an adjustment and abandon your plan? Would it be, let's say, the first three games and you're down three love, you're gonna say, that's it, my plan's no good. What, 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 what's the criterion? When are you gonna make that adjustment? Great question. So you can't make it too early and you can't make it too late. So I would say within the first couple of games, you are not going to change the plan. You are still going to try to execute because you're confident that your game plan has some validity to it. If you get into the middle of the set or, you know, the other player is starting to close in on, on the set, then I would say that if things are still not showing promise in terms of that original game plan, you have to start trying to adjust it. So I would say that within, within the first six games, you could make an evaluation and see how it's going and see whether that game plan needs an adjustment. If I'm, I mean, granted, if you go down like four love, things are starting to, you know, finish a little bit in terms of the set. You have to start to try some different things there to get some traction in that set so that you're not just giving them set away like six, one or six, two, uh, and, and, and then having, uh, you know, to figure it all out for your second set now down a first set. So I wouldn't wait like too long, but you can't like pull the trigger too early within the first couple of games, uh, you have to give yeah. it a chance. So Scott, I think it's also important for everyone to understand a really crucial difference. The plan means how you are structuring the point in the hope of winning the point or the game or the set. But sometimes the errors that we make and the reason that we fall behind it could be that the plan is good. You're getting into winning position and you're not executing your shots. When that happens, I'm a big believer in sticking with the plan 
because it's all really actually working except for that final execution. What what are what's your feeling on that? Well, yeah, I think that uh, that that's something that certainly uh, we can't overlook. That is actually the first thing that I am evaluating as the match is going along. How many errors am I making? Unforced errors am I making? And not just versus how many unforced errors the opponent is making. You need to play a competent match and a competitive match. You need to play within yourself. You need to play where you get a lot of balls back over the net and you test your opponent to see how well they move. Again, you haven't seen this player before. You've only seen them a little in warm-up. Now you're getting more inventory of information from playing the actual match. And you have to see like how well they move laterally, how well do they move coming forward and going back? What's their error rate? What side do they have more inconsistency on? But you have to get your shot consistently operating in in the match so that the strategy that you have developed can be uh can you know you have a chance to see whether it works otherwise you don't really know whether it's working because you're not making the other player really hit enough balls correct so I, I know you and I both subscribe to one of the standard cliches about how to go about sticking to a plan or not. And that's the one, never change a winning game. So we'll, I think we'll both agree that that's a part of the way that you approach a match. I have a couple of others though, which I'd like your comments on. The first one is, barely winning is often good enough to win. So you were a serve and volleyer, Scott. So many times I would think against a tough player, even if it's your favorite court, a fairly fast court, there were some long do sad games going back and forth where it was a real tussle to hold your serve. But I would also wager that a lot of these games you would win seven points to five or eight points to six barely winning was good enough to win i'd like to hear uh your comments on that well i think it might be a little tough for uh people to understand what barely winning means i think that to clarify that is that you are playing a very, very closely contested game in that you're not serving it out at 45, 40, 15, but that you're very often going to deuce, then going to add in, then going to deuce, and then going to add out and back and forth. So, you know, you have to be ahead by two points to win the game, just like you have to be ahead by two games to win the set. The key is don't get nervous and don't get crazy with your game plan because you know you're at four all 
or five and then five four in a set and you think oh i got to do something special now to win this game you or this set you need to execute but you need to just stay a little bit ahead of your opponent and you can grab the set if you get the set it doesn't matter that you've won it 7-5 or that you won it in a tiebreaker versus winning 6-1, 6-2, or whatever. So you have to maintain this uh, control where you're not trying to play above yourself because you're trying to create too much distance between you and your opponent when it comes to the score. So yeah, I so think that that's what, that's what I think that, you know, the barely winning thing is that, you know, as long as you're winning – then that's what's important. That means you're yeah. playing well, well enough. Just to clarify, what I meant was something like 52 versus 48%. It doesn't sound like much of a margin, but in tennis, that usually translates to around a 6-2-6-2. It's, I mean, the actual scores of the games and sets aren't that close. 52-48 is enough to translate into most of the time a fairly convincing win and in the few matches on the pro tour where a player actually wins more points but loses the match it's usually within they lost uh they won maybe one or two more points in the entire match not like 52 to 48 so just to clarify what i meant by that and i have one final bit of advice when players hit a really good shot, like let's say someone comes in and I pass them down the line on a certain shot, the very next time they come into the net, I, I'm going to hit the same exact shot un until they cover it. There's no reason for me to change. Many times club players do something like the following. Say, I just beat him down the line. Now I'm going to show them I can hit cross court. Then I'm going to throw in a lob. I'm going to have this guy so confused by a couple games from now, it's over. No, to me, the best way to make it over is to keep making the same winning play until they make an adjustment. So, for example, Scott, if you were, again, your serve volleyer serving to someone's backhand, and they're unable to consistently hit good returns. Would you see any reason to mix it up and show them, wow, I have a good serve to the forehand side too? No, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have any logical reason to do that because why argue with success? I remember doing that in a match on the grass at Forest Hills in the 35 and overs. And I stupidly went over and hit a wide slice to Alex Diaz from Brazil. And I'm not really sure why I threw it over there other than I knew that he would miss that shot every once in a while. But when he hit that shot right, it was like not going to be something I could handle coming back. And in a very important point in the tiebreaker, I sliced that ball out there a little bit to his forehand and he just stepped in and stuck it down the line for a winner and it was like it was like maybe not the total difference in the match 
but was it in total, it made the difference in that who won that set. So Scott, I think we're going to wrap it up for today. And I just like to summarize for our listeners how to make a game plan. The first key is to know yourself. Make sure you're you have a good sense of what are your strengths and weaknesses so you can play around both of those. Secondly, you should assess to some degree your opponent so you might make a minor adjustment in your plan based upon their mobility, their grips, the amount of spin they put on the ball, etc. And finally, uh, stick to a winning plan. If you've got one that's really working, that's you just stick to it. Don't make any changes too often. I've seen matches where a team is up six, two, four, three, and suddenly they get a little tentative, just wanting to hold on and get the win, but they're actually changing without their opponents having done anything. And that steady aggressive framework that we laid out for everybody is key. You should be making the steady aggressive plan before the match and stick with it during the match and adjust only if necessary. Scott, thank you so much for today. Thanks, Bob. That was very good.